0: I started talking about my interest in human-centered leadership, I was told that I had to meet Mark LeBusque, the human manager. We had a chat about how he got to where he is and what difference it makes when managers treat people like humans. He shared some advice that he got that set him on this course and the approach he takes when he teaches his human manager program. It can be confronting to look at yourself and see the reality of the impact that your lack of self-awareness can have. He creates a safe container for what he calls the zone of disequilibrium. We talk about what it takes to move from behavior that is essentially knuckle-dragging to being upright, confident, and happy, and the distinction between authority and leadership. All right, I'm speaking with Mark LeBusque, and he is the human manager. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about who you are and what that means.
1: Okay thanks Chatra. so um a little bit of my background i guess um 25 years in in corporate world um in a range of roles from working in operations um senior sales roles and in in hr roles started my professional career as a school teacher way back in the, in the late 80s and um and i guess that in respect to where I am today, my thirst for learning myself but also um, the pleasure of seeing others learn is what really drives me to the work that I do today and has really brought me back in a – I call it a 25-year loop to, mm. to, to put it that way. That um, So really today it's about helping um, particularly um, adults to learn that you know, you're never past – learning and learning new things and learning new things about yourself and about others and and really connecting back into what it is to be be human so my program and and I guess my my term the human manager comes from uh, I think observations over 25 years of myself as what I'd call a not a human manager so a manager who Got to where he got to at an early age because he was technically good at what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'll be really honest, I grabbed hold of the coattails of some managers and they dragged me through. Um, now that helped me to a certain extent until I started to work with big teams and, and I really didn't have any idea on the, the human side of things. So, um, I failed uh, in mm-hmm. essence, um, even though I thought I was, I was succeeding because I was a young up and coming senior manager. I'd, I'd failed and it, and it took a couple of events from me, tatra one being um, the death of my father um, about 15 years ago and um, uh, quite suddenly he actually took his own life. Oh, and then wow. I looked to um, around five or six years back with my mum who was um, diagnosed with cancer and died about two weeks after a diagnosis, started oh, wow. to, to think that you know I really needed to think a bit differently about not just my life, but the way that I impacted on other human beings as well, and some of the lessons I'd learned from that. And and what's come apparent to me is that it's about creating belonging and making every human being in the workplace or outside of there feel like they belong. So that's that's really the genesis of of the the program I run today called the Human Manager.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and I often hear about the the challenges that those who are promoted for their technical skill without much in the way of um people skills or managing people skills and, and there seems to be a lot out there to try and try and deal with that but it it seems you know I was just listening to a podcast the other day on the failure of training and how it sort of you know it uh, doesn't address things in an immersive way it's more of a informative approach so, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your your approach and why why it uh, might have a better impact than some of the other things that are out there?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I think you raise a great point about um, about I guess what's out there in, in in the field today. And what I'm observing, or what I observed over my time, was it was most of the programs are about um, teaching you how to do things. So, how do you how do you Make your people happier and how do you have conversations with them and, and give them feedback and, um, you know, do those sorts of things. But my programmer, I think it, it's different is that it's really about putting the mirror on yourself as the manager. So, um, so I spend at least the first day of my two day program where the mirror is firmly put on the participant in the room and it's about them, what I call uh. understanding their part in the mess that they find uh. themselves in. Um, and what I mean by that is is that until you can understand what you're bringing to, the, to your situation as a manager that's not useful, um, it is very difficult for you to then look outwards and start to help others. So um, my approach is I'd say in some respects I hear people say it's confrontational in some respects, um, but in a good way. They feel like they're being um, – stretched and they're being made uncomfortable Mm. but it's being done with good intention Um, Mm. and I think the other thing that comes out of that is that the participants realize that a big part of the work they have to do Tathra is them so until they do the work on themselves and understand what they're bringing that's either helping them or not helping them um, they really can't make the progress that, that they need to and and because we promote people based upon mm-hmm. what they do yeah. and not how they how they're being um, that's why we're in a situation where there's billions of dollars spent on on development programs that are not having any cut through at all because we're trying to we're trying to get people to do something differently but they're so, not being uh, let me
0: ask you about the appetite for or i suppose willingness around people working on themselves because that just seems so outside of I mean, I think there, there's a recognition that personal development is professional development, but I think there's this sort of artificial line of how far people are willing to go, and it's in my experience, it's it's fairly limited. So I'm imagining, obviously, you're working with people at a quite a depth. So tell me about the, your experience of the appetite for this kind of, let's call it, self-reflection.
1: The appetite is—it um, works on a whole – I guess I look, if I look on along a continuum, there are people that are at the very back end of saying, this is just all airy-fairy mm-hmm. stuff, Mark, and yeah. where, um, where's the um, return on investment if I'm going to get someone to come in the room and look in the mirror? Um, so there is still quite a bit mm-hmm. of that. There's then you move along to the curiosity about it that I'm curious, um, <laughs> yeah. but I'm a bit concerned about dipping my toe in the water because of what I might find out. And then I go to the other end of the continuum and then I I call it, there's people that just want to, they're ready to dive into the deep end of the pool. And it's almost um, a challenge for me to hold them back a little bit, get too carried away. So the appetite, look, I look at it this way. I think the appetite is growing for the whole concept. Look, I think there's a continued push and there's a shift now around how do organizations create some sort of real sustainable differentiation into the future? And you know they've done the commodity thing to death, and I think the progressive organizations are starting to realize that their differentiation now is going to come from their people and And what I mean by that is is that if we can tap into the real simple things about people feeling like they they belong to something bigger than them. That they're contributing to a team, to a department, to an organization, um, and doing what I just consider to be good work, um, that they will do more. Their discretionary effort will increase. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've tested this myself with, with my last team when I was in a corporate and we, we went down this pathway of, of being before doing. And, you know, the results that we saw were, engagement scores in the high 90s and business results 200% ahead of target. Wow. Because we went down a different pathway. So it's really interesting until people see the results spelled out in that way, they're a bit skeptical about this. And I understand that because the system is all about return and, and return on investment and whatnot. But when you start to create um, mm-hmm. that sort of magic, I called it, and those hard numbers, it's very hard to, to to not look at this as a new way to sustain success in your organisation through people.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and that really speaks to the the human centeredness of it, and that the that you know when our focus is on business outcomes and things are you know centred around that, as opposed to the people who are part of that system, that clearly the result is very different.
1: Yeah, look absolutely and um you know I've worked in both and I've I think I've had my very best results when I've taken this more human approach because it's hardwired in us it's just it's natural for us to to do this and we tend to put barriers and blockages in the way through using the 100-year-old management system mm-hmm. to create something that is I'd say unremarkable at best.
0: Mm. Yeah, I hear you. So, I want to go back to, um, how I connected to you initially. I was telling some, I was talking to some people about my, um, well, people in the human centered design field about my desire to bring human centeredness to leadership. And, um, they said, Oh, you've got to meet Mark. He's, he's doing this. This is, this is what, you know, he's doing what you're talking about. And then, um, you and I met and we had a, you know, really interesting conversation. And I remember, leaving that conversation with a real distinct, just a, 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 what struck me was, even though it seems very obvious in many ways, um, and it's not a new idea, but it just really gave me the opportunity to reflect on how I've been thinking about leadership. And you said, there are no leaders, there are only acts of leadership. So can you talk to me a bit about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, So it's not new, and in fact, I was exposed to the adaptive leadership framework, the work of uh, Ron Heifetz and Marty Linsky um, around about seven years ago. And, and what really struck me at the time was this whole concept that leadership is a verb, it's an act, um, it's not a title, it's not a team. You're not a leader because you get invited to a meeting at nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning called the leadership team meeting. Um, <laughs> and for, really for me, I started to think, how can I um create an environment with my own team where everyone in the team, regardless of title or rank or job role, has the opportunity to demonstrate acts of leadership and yeah the, the i I guess the dilemma there to start with is is that because we've we anoint people as leaders based upon hierarchy and and sort of where they get to. We're always looking up and the technical skill. Absolutely, <laughs> technical skill again. We're always looking up for the leaders for um, the, the decisions, and 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 I have a really strong belief, and having seen it work now, and and now teaching people on how to do this stuff, is that leadership teams actually stifle leadership acts. So the more leadership teams that we have, the less leadership acts we're going to see because there are
0: is it about deflecting responsibility, and all the leaders they're the ones that do well there's that? a
1: couple of things here one is one is about deflecting responsibility from those people who I say are closest to the customer or to the action who mm-hmm. who have every day an opportunity to demonstrate acts leadership so they can deflect that um, and the other side of it is is we put enormous pressure on on few people to be the leaders so I think there then becomes this whole dilemma between being and doing. And we feel like we've got to be doing things to be leaders, like getting in a room at nine o'clock on a Tuesday and meeting for an hour and calling ourselves leaders and really not, not allowing the whole business to, to participate in, in leadership. And, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one to break.
0: So is it about like segmenting it? Sort of professionalizing leadership, in a sense, and and that it's it's a bit it creates that duality, I
1: suppose. Yeah, look, I think so. I think it's what comes to mind for me, Tathra, is it's about reframing what leadership is, and and we shouldn't refer to leaders and leadership teams. We should only refer refer to acts of leadership. So, my preference here would be that let's success comes from. Being able to be aware and capture acts of leadership within your organization, within your community, within your family, within your country. And, um, and that can be as simple as an act of leadership to me is someone finding their voice in a room where they may not be, um, you know, at the top of the tree. Mm -hmm. So, you know, challenging with good intention to make progress is an act of leadership.
0: And I want to dive into that in a moment, but tell me about if we're not calling them leaders, what do we call them?
1: Look, that's a really good question. If we're not calling them leaders, look, to me, and, and this comes back to Linsky and Heifertz, is they are really authority figures. And and authority figures are important. Marty and Ron will talk about they provide protection, direction, and order. And and those things are really important because if we don't have them, we can have chaos, However, most people are promoted into positions and given the authority to do what they do. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're leading because leadership is seen as dancing on the edge of your authority. So you're authorised to do certain things. However, um, if you're not dancing at the edge of your authority and what you're allowed to do, you're not really leading. And part of that is speaking up.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So, distinguishing authority from leadership, I, I can I can see the the benefit in that, and and obviously having leadership not be exclusive to those in authority.
1: Absolutely, I think that's a, that's a great way of putting it. Is leadership is not an entitlement and a right and an exclusivity for people who have got themselves into a position that's at the higher end of a, an organisational chart or they've got some fancy title because everybody has the ability to demonstrate an active leadership.
0: Love it. So I want to go back to what you said about um, disrupting or is it disequilibrium. Tell, tell me, let's talk a bit more about that and, and why it's important.
1: Yeah. So so I look at three things here. If, if you imagine it as a circle, but, um, I guess three circles there working out from the circle in the middle which I say is your comfort zone so right in the middle of this circle you have comfort um, mm-hmm. which I think is is not useful the next circle out I talk about the zone of disequilibrium um, or a level of discomfort that comes from being one being stretched um, mm-hmm. and then the third circle again which isn't useful is the distress circle so this whole idea that as a manager, Uh, and as a facilitator in the work I do, I base my success around keeping participants in the zone of disequilibrium um, because that's where learning happens. Now, that might be as simple as me asking them and probing them after they make a statement. Tell me more about that. Um, I'm curious to know more. Um, I don't think you have fully explained yourself there because – Sometimes people, as you know, will just want tell you what you think they that you want to hear. Yeah. Um, so this whole idea that in order for human beings to grow and learn and become more understanding of self and others, they need to be stretched. It's a little bit like, you know, learning a skill, playing a sport or learning some sort of skill. Um, if you get to a certain point and you're just happy with being there, you become comfortable. Mm-hmm. So, who is the coach that's going to stretch you out further and further so that you are somewhere between, I call, sitting on the couch with your comfy slippers on or laying in the fetal position in the corner of the room, sucking your thumb? That's the space in between there where, where, where people have to be. And look, I'm really honest about that. I talk about that in, in my program. So say, my role is to keep you comfortably uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so so how do
0: you make it safe for people to to go there?
1: Well, the the way I do that is really create a create a container and a frame at the start to allow the people in the room to understand that the work I'm going to do with them, which will create some discomfort for them, is again done based around three things from this is from me. I do it with good intention, I do it to help them make progress, and I do it to serve them. And not myself, mm-hmm. and and I explain that right up front because I think it's important that I don't just walk in the room and start creating disequilibrium because I I don't think that's fair on the participants. I don't think it creates a safe container yeah. for them to do their yeah. very best work. Um, so that's the way I do it. I, I put it up front and just say, "Here's here's what I want to do now. Will you give me permission to do that?" Yeah, and yeah. And people will say, yes. And the other thing I, I do check in with them, Tathra, if you can imagine those three circles, I actually get them to come up on on a on a flip chart and just mark down where they are on those three circles at mm-hmm, the start okay. of the program. And some people will put on the edge of comfort and, you know, disequilibrium. Some will be out at the edge of distress and most of them are in, in discomfort. And I'll just check in through the program to see where they're at because, Part of my role as a facilitator is to make sure that um, if I'm if I'm observing distress, I need to help that person feel a bit safer. Yeah. And if yeah. I'm observing comfort, I'm going to actually stretch that person out.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah, I've used the um, the three circles in in evaluation before, but I haven't looked at it from where well throughout a program just and and looking at it from um yeah comfort zone learning zone and distress zone and yeah it could be incredibly informative i'm interested to hear your your thoughts like do do you have a vision of how things could be if people brought more humanity to managing or brought more active leadership to authority or just in general, what, what can you imagine things would be like that the workplace would be like if we had more yes. of that?
1: Yeah, like, look, that's a great, great question. I think that um, the first thing that I think of is the word that comes to mind is back to this word of belonging and people just feeling like they belong to something. So um, what I would see, what I would observe would be fairly robust conversation happening. Nice. And I like to call it healthy conflict mm-hmm. going on in the room. I'd like to think that every voice in the room was being heard and that we weren't looking at the authority figure, you know, in that moment of awkward silence where everyone's mm-hmm. not sure what to say. Yep. That one finds their voice and speaks up. Um,
0: Fantastic.
1: I would see, um, I call it, I call what I see at the moment is knuckle dragging. I'd see people's. <laughs> Standing upright, I would see them shoulders back, um, confident. Um, I wouldn't see them walking around with three folders under their arm, their phone up to their ear, and anything in their face between a very dark crimson to a really purple colour. Um, people are people look happy. Look, I guess it simply comes down to people look happy. They're not just saying they're busy. They're saying they're yeah. When I ask someone how they are they're telling me they're productive mm. and then they're, I'm just not busy um, and what I would also see is I wouldn't what I, I wouldn't be able to pick I walked into a room I wouldn't be able to pick who the authority in the room was I'd be able to walk mm. hey everybody in this room looks like they feel like they should be here they deserve to be in the room and um, so you know I wouldn't um, I wouldn't observe that.
0: And so what, what difference is that going to make for people and for businesses okay, and so for organizations aiming to achieve a particular purpose? Okay, so let me
1: talk about um, – I think I can just talk about the experiment that I ran with that, that team of mine over two years. So mm, yeah, here's, here's what we observed was um, a very, very deep connection um, mm. between the people in the group, which manifested itself in, I'd say, in the, in the office – a lot of laughter, um, mm, nice. very very jovial people, um, and, in fact, sometimes other groups saying, what's wrong with them? They seem to be so happy with what's going on. Um, too much fun going on over there. Get back to work. Yeah, too much fun. What are you guys doing? What's all this kumbaya stuff? What do you go out for coffee to get right. 9.30 on a Monday um, every week? And and what do you talk about? What's going on? Um, so, so the first thing you start to see is, is just a change in the way people turn up. Um, They turn up to work because they're feeling like they're belonging to something bigger than them and they're contributing. I think that's really important. How does that start to show itself in the business? What I would see is that these people would be behaving in a different way. Um, And let me give you an example of that. They would... um, be asking other people how they're going and they'd be very genuine about it. They would want to know. They would Mm. pick something up that things weren't well and they would not just ask you the question but they would want to genuinely know if there was anything that they could do to help you. Um, It was back to doing it. It's back to doing the – it's just the very, very simple human things, looking out for each other. How it then then works into the business is um, I think – it started to reduce the – talk about a sales environment here, Tatra. It reduced mm-hmm. the sales cycle time by about half because you got to the point quickly. Um, you could either help a customer or you couldn't help them um, mm-hmm. and you would move on or you would pursue an opportunity. So cutting the sales cycle in half effectively means bringing in more sales um, or, or killing things off pretty quickly and moving on. Mm-hmm. Um what does that then look like as you move on? What it looked like for us was we hit our target in year one by two hundred and thirty-seven percent. We had an engagement score of ninety-one percent, we had a leadership score of ninety-six, um, and those are the little magical things that that start to create some sustainability. Now, year two, the organization tripled our target because they thought our target was soft. <laughs> Wow! So in two, so we hit our target on a triple target by 198, and and then wow. it was a little bit about what what are you what are you doing? And and my simple response, which I've I've actually written in in my book, which will be launched in February. When I was asked the question of what have you done, I said I just simply treat my people like humans. Mm. Um, so
0: simple yet so profound.
1: <laughs> well, well, he, here's my point. You know, we talk about VUCA and complexity and all this. I think too many organisations are looking for the silver bullet and looking to split the atom yep. on some complex thing here where the simplicity of this whole human-centred piece is all we need to do is go back to what it is to be human. Hmm. And and because we are caught in a 100-year-old management system that rewards and promotes technical competence and doing, we've lost touch with being. Yeah. So...
0: It sounds like there's a lot of effort to to bring that back, and I love that you're a, a you know significant part of that, and I love the way you really challenge, um, challenge the status quo, challenge people on an individual basis in a way that is really, um, I'm gonna say healthy. I just think it it really brings out something um, that's that's beneficial for everyone involved. So um, yeah, I, I, just before we finish, is there anything that you would say to um, people who are wanting to express leadership, to to engage in more acts of leadership, but just feeling a bit reluctant and maybe haven't yet found their voice? What advice would you have for them?
1: Um, I think they've got to ask themselves the question of what is holding me back. So, hmm. and, and when I say ask themselves is, turn the mirror on themselves here because what's what's an easy thing to do here, tather is to go, I'm not going to say anything because if I do, you know, someone else will shut me down or cut me off. What you need to face into here is what is it that you fear more than speaking mm. up and, you know, improving yourself. So what's the thing you fear more than becoming better at something that's important to you? Mm. And until you have that, um, really, really honest look in the mirror and conversation with yourself. It's always simple to just blame someone else. And yeah. And I say this again because I took some advice from an amazing HR manager about eight years ago after a after my fifteenth um, you know psych assessment. And and it kept saying things like you're not a good networker, Mark. You have very so low self awareness. Um, <laughs> da 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 da. And and I kept resisting this and saying, it's not me, it's not, not me, until the day where her name was Kirsten Schneider. She hit me with what I call a velvet sledgehammer. <laughs> and she said, mate, if you want to get better, you need to look at good, hard look at yourself. And that was the moment for me where um, I really started to turn the mirror on myself and, you know, seven or eight years down the track, I'm a very different person. So I think that's what you need to be able to do. You've got to, you've got to keep the mirror on yourself how – However uncomfortable that might be, it's important to do that. And then I'll just finish on this: ask people who will tell you what you need to hear, and what not what you want to hear. Mm. What they think about you. So what what do I what you need to hear rather than what you want to hear? And um, and I think you'll be well on your way to you know stepping up and demonstrating strong acts of leadership, regardless of your position in an organisation.
0: Brilliant. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. No problem. There are no leaders, only acts of leadership. As someone who's all about challenging how leadership is, this really challenged how I looked at leadership. Being able to distinguish authority from leadership and recognizing the importance of leadership at every level is such an important piece in this puzzle. Mark kept bringing us back to belonging and things like It's relationship to discretionary effort. Having a team where people wonder why you're so happy and why you're rating so highly on leadership and engagement and why you're exceeding your targets. It seems so simple. Treat your people like humans. But he helps us remember that when you are immersed in a 100-year-old leadership model that rewards doing, not being, that emphasizes being directive, coveting power, not trusting your people to do their jobs, it can seem counterintuitive to do something other than treat them mean to keep them keen. But we know that to stay current, to thrive into the future, being human-centered is the way to go. To find out more about Mark's work, you can find the links to his website in the show notes, and his book's coming out in February, Being Human, Why Robots Are Not the Answer to Business Success. It challenges the notion that technical competence and a robotic approach to human management still has a place in the modern world. He shares his own story and the role of belonging in the work that he does. Check it out. Hey, thanks for listening to Tall Poppy. It's really exciting to see it grow from like a 100 listeners in the first month or so to getting up towards about 400 at this point. And we've got our first review from the very lovely Liz Scarf. She says, I'm loving these conversations. So many great prompts for thinking about personal professional development. And there's really no difference between the two. So thrilled to hear so many people talking about the value of interpersonal skills in business. Thanks for the great interviews, Tathra. They've been great food for thought. Thanks, Liz. That means a lot. To give you an idea of who we've got coming up in the next few weeks, We've got Jessica Watson, who was the youngest person to circumnavigate the globe solo sailing and the startup that she's working on now, which is a bit like TripAdvisor for sailors. And further down the track, I've got some great interviews lined up this year. b Culture Amp, possibly Tesla, vinamofo And if you've got a great boss or know a tall poppy that you think would be a great interview, send them my way. You can email poppy at com or use the contact form on the website. So that's TathraStreet.com, tcom Thanks again for your support, and we'll see you next week.